welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, everyone. I'm Melanie Balke, the founder of The Email Marketers. We're an email marketing agency that work with predominantly e-commerce brands, but also B2B and SaaS brands to build better email channels that increase revenue, but also build community. Uh, we also offer a kind of community where you can come in and learn about all our processes and our knowledge and build your in-house team yourself. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast. Melanie, can you maybe, as we're diving in, maybe tell me a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like right now? Yeah, totally. My day-to-day right now has a lot of calls and meetings in it, I must say, which I'm, I'm working on cutting down, but I still run the sales for my company. So I do all the sales meetings. I do all the internal meetings, like our weekly stand-up meetings with department heads, meetings with my ops manager. Um, and then, you know, like some some small meetings here and there, like po- marketing stuff, podcasts like ours today, or even, you know, meeting with partners who are helping us. So a mix of meetings. And then outside of the meetings, I do a lot of content. I do a lot of LinkedIn and uh, Twitter, and I do a lot of kind of bigger picture strategy items. So that's that's pretty much what I do all day. Got it. You said something really interesting there, which is you're trying to kind of figure out ways to cut out some of those meetings. What is, can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe some of the ways that you're thinking about how you go about auditing your calendar to figure out what meetings you really need to be in? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, to be honest, this is one of the biggest challenges that I have. When you build a company and you scale it, one of the hardest things is taking your eyes off of things and actually delegating. We are, you know, as we grow, I am delegating more and more, but it's a balance to figure out, you know, what should I still be involved in and and what do I want to delegate? And I don't just want to abdicate because I think most people delegate by abdication. So they just go like, okay, you do this now without any guidance. How am I figuring out what I should be in is, is kind of that way, you know, is this something where I can really add value because it's me, Melanie, or is this something where I'm in because I'm the only one who knows how to do this? In the primary case, I will still run the meeting. In the latter case, it's more about how do I build the knowledge with other people so they can run the meeting. That's really interesting. Can you maybe talk a little bit more and maybe share an example of how you figure out you know, a time when it makes sense to delegate? And how to delegate that in a way that kind of empowers your team or someone on your team to be able to take that out, take ownership of it? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think almost everything makes sense to delegate in my eyes. At the end of the day, a really good business is a business where the founder and CEO doesn't actually have to work in the business. Uh, those are the most sellable businesses for one reason, because they don't have to figure out who's going to take over that position, right? That also means Usually sellable businesses are really good businesses. So we kind of take that as our North Star metric. So generally, I think almost everything should be delegated. However, there is a life cycle to it, right? Like right now, I still run sales because I haven't really done too much on the marketing side where I feel like it's justified to hire a full-time salesperson. This is something that we wanted to build out this year. And we're probably actually going to build out early next year is the sales team. 
once I've delegated the sales team, I look at, okay, what's the next thing I can delegate? So I go through it piece by piece, depending on where we're at in the life cycle. Got it. I know you've been running your agency for quite a few years now. What was the first thing that you delegated? And yeah, if you don't mind me asking or some of, did you make any mistakes in that process? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the first thing I delegated was design because I, I, I'm i not a designer. So very early on, I hired a designer on a contract basis to help me. She's awesome. She's still with the company. I love her the most. So I hired her and we kind of worked together and I get gave her very active feedback in the beginning. And so I think she learned very quickly how to design well for emails and how to kind of design the, the Melanie way. And then the next thing I delegated was, you know, I was getting burnt out and I felt like I just wanted an assistant, to be honest. So I hired this girl fresh out of college uh, on like an hourly basis because she wanted to travel. And so I was good at match. And then I gave her, you know, parts of the puzzle piece by piece. First, I gave her copywriting and I gave her one task and I feedback that very heavily. And then we shared it with the client. And then I gave her a strategy and I feedback that very heavily. And then we shared it with the client. So I would give her pieces of the, of the client fulfillment process. And then eventually once the stuff she was producing was up to my standards, I, I gave her kind of like free reigns on everything and I gave her her own clients. So that worked really well actually, but what didn't work was when I hired the next person is I kind of just was hoping she was going to train that person. And that has over and over not really worked out for me is like hiring and and hoping someone else knows how to train them without me actively supervising. So that is where I've made some mistakes. And, and also that's where it just took me longer to realize whether a person is a good fit or not. Absolutely. There's a lot in there that I want to unpack. First and foremost, it's like you mentioned something really interesting that I think is actually incredibly rare, which is finding an assistant who can then kind of like grow with your agency and be able to take on more and more of that workload. Um, how did you go about finding this person and how did you get them up to speed so that like it sounded like they were pretty entry level and getting to the point where they actually could, you know, do some account management and some strategy as well? Yeah, it was a total coincidence. I found her in a university group and, you know, I was really only looking for someone to work a couple of hours and take a couple of things off of my plate, but I trained her very actively. So she really was working with me every day. I would give her a task. It was almost like I would teach her how to do something. Then I would give her homework. The homework was usually a task for a client. Then the homework would come back to me. Then I'd feedback that and I'd give her the feedback and she would learn from the feedback and get better with every task. Um, so it was a very active process, right? It's like, you're essentially becoming a teacher and a coach at the same time. And we would do weekly meetings where I would, you know, in the beginning daily, but then at the end, weekly meetings where I would say, hey, this is what's working really well. And this is what we can improve upon. And then over the course of months, she really like, I trained her up to the point where she could take accounts on her own. So it was very, very hands-on and very, very time-consuming. But, you know, at that point, I only had a few clients and me giving her task alone was taking off a lot of plate off of um, a lot of work off of my plate. So it kind of made sense. That model becomes harder to scale, right? Because once you have like 30 clients and you hire four people, you don't really have the time to train people at that level. Yeah, absolutely. That is literally my next question, which is, 
how do you go about training today in a way to make sure that your team is at the right quality level and or trained up enough to be able to deliver really great work at scale, given that you are much larger than you were in the early days? Yeah, great question. I think training starts at the hiring level, right? Just making sure you're hiring the right people who were a startup still. So we need people who in this environment, they're self-starters. They know how to, how to get stuff done. They, you don't, they don't need a push, you know, they're ready to learn and they're, they're, they do well in ambiguous environments and they can teach themselves and they're hungry. So I think that's the first piece. Then when they come in, we have about a, like a six week training course with Loom videos and checklists and written instructions, um, which is our entire onboarding curriculum. So we actually put together a curriculum and they then go through that curriculum and execute on client tasks that then a senior person or department head looks at and feedbacks. So they don't actually do client work that goes to the client without the feedback, but they do client work. So they are learning hands-on and kind of getting a similar to experience to what that, that first hire had from me. Yeah, I love that. So first kind of question that I had tied to that, which is when you're looking for people who can kind of, you mentioned like, you know, hiring the right people. What does your hiring process look like today to make sure that you can have the best chance of finding people who are going to mesh well, not only with your agency's culture, but also mesh well in a way that they're going to be set up for success? Yeah, it's a challenge that we're still figuring out. So, you know, we 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 work on a four-day work week. We have 20 days PTO. We have flexible work times. We are uh, 100% remote. So I think this company has a lot of perks and that can sometimes attract the wrong person because it might be someone who just doesn't want to work that hard or that much. However, we have these perks because this is a hard job. This is a super demanding job, right? This is not like the chill place to work. So that's kind of been a challenge for us. We have a very, very um, multi-step, I would say, challenging hiring process. People submit uh, written answers and videos in the first round. They go through a task and a test in the second round. Then we have a group interview. Um, so there's like multiple levels they have to go through, including individual interviews at the end. Part of the reason we do this is we want the hiring process to be difficult because we really want people who are excited about this job and not just people who are applying to a thousand different things, right? We want people who want to come in and make an impact and be excited about what we're building as a young company, not just people who are working somewhere uh, for the money. And listen, I'm not delusional. I know at the end of the day, everyone is working somewhere for the money, but we want people to actually enjoy and be excited about what they're building. And so we have this multi-step hiring process uh, for that reason. And, and we we purposefully make it difficult because we want the A players. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are you finding today and, you know, given that, you know, how much AI has advanced with like chat TPT in the last year, are you finding that now as you're hiring people, you almost have to do even more screening to screen out the people who are maybe using chat TPT to write their resume and to go through the application? 100%. But it's so easy to spot what, what is written by chat GBT. So we can almost tell immediately when people use ChatGPT, and a lot of people use more ChatGPT. I encourage using ChatGPT, right? Like I want them, 
I'm totally fine if they're able to produce really good high results with AI if they are using AI. However, we do see that people fall into those pitfalls. Like when I give people a task, I know exactly who used ChatGBT to complete that task um, because it's about the nuances, right? They're missing the nuances. Now, if someone uses ChatGPT for the structure, but they have the knowledge and they go in there and they make changes where I can see, okay, there's the nuance, then yeah, I'm fine with that. But to answer your question, yeah, we we see immediately when people use ChatGPT. So it's not so much more that we have to do more screening. It's just that, you know, we see its use more, but it's not harder for us to figure out who's used ChatGPT or not. Absolutely. And so you've, gotten people to do all the all the written stuff. Fast forward to the interview. Fast forward to like interviewing people. How are you actually going about that? And kind of, are, do you have any kind of go-to questions or go-to things that you really look for in kind of those final stages before you hire someone? Yeah, I mean, we have a group interview. The purpose of the group interview is really to see how people show up in a group setting. If they're good team players, if they're not, if they're a good culture fit or not. You can see that pretty easily within the dynamics people have with each other. In the final interviews, you know, I have the very, very final interview, the end interview. And I look for primarily like culture fit. Is this person a culture fit for the email marketers? Are we a good fit for their goals, right? Because it's not just that I'm interviewing people to see if they're a good fit for us. I'm interviewing people to see if we're a good fit for them. Because the person on the other side might be super mega talented and a great person, but I just might see like, hey, we're not going to be a fit for them based off of what they want. And I want to avoid that for both of us. It's kind of like, imagine in dating how you date one person and that's just a terrible relationship. That doesn't mean that you are bad to date. It's just that means you guys weren't a fit for each other. And so we're trying to avoid those relationships as well. Uh, so that's what I'm really looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. Going to the group interview, is it always the same people who are in that interview? And if not, if so, or even if not, um, how do you figure out who's going to be in that interview? And how many people is it typically? Yeah, so in terms of you're like asking if from our team, it's always the same people in the group interview? Yeah. Yeah, it's always the same people. We haven't rolled this out yet, but we do want to in the individual interviews we would like to bring in one random person from the team. Um, purpose of that is just to, to have someone else besides me or, you know, the people who normally do the hiring look for culture fit. And I also think it really gives people like say, you know, it gives people, what would you say? Like it gives people input into who is joining the team and makes them more invested. So we like to have people, we like to, we would like to have people in the future join those interviews together. Yeah. And how many people are in that group interview? Uh, it depends, actually. I'd have to look it up. I think it's like between four and eight or something like that. Do you ever find that a candidate gets maybe a little bit intimidated if there are five, six or seven people on that call besides them? 100%, yeah. And it's kind of, that's one of the challenges that, you know, that we also want to present to people? Like, how do you do in a group setting? Absolutely. And do you have any kind of go-to questions that you almost always ask or things that, you know, tend to lead to like really interesting insights that can give you 
a better glimpse into who this person is and if they are going to be a good fit? I mean, one of the standard questions that it's such an old question and I love it, but like, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? I love asking this question because it gives me a good idea of how self-aware people are and how willing they are to admit their faults. Um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the pitfalls here is to, to pretend like you don't have any faults. One of the other pitfalls here is to like make your faults sound like a win. I think that's, that's one of the questions I love. The other question I love is just asking people about their goals because it gives me an idea of where they want to go. And if that's a fit for, for the email marketers, you know? Absolutely. And do you have any particular like standout hiring stories, whether they were good or just like disasters? I have a really funny hiring story where someone applied and I looked at their, I looked at their application and they were actually out of budget for us. And I, I wanted them to know as quickly as possible. So I was like, Hey, I apologize, but you're out of budget for us. And then he asked what the budget was. And I didn't reply to the email because I had different calls. Then I was just, I, I just finished a call and I was like, okay, I'm going to have a quick bite of lunch before I answer these emails. And he called me on my personal cell and I, I never pick up phone numbers that I don't know, but I just randomly picked up. And so he called me and he was like, Hey, you know, I did some research. I found your phone number online. I wanted to know what the budget for the position is. You hadn't replied yet because I'm really trying to leave this toxic workplace. And so I said, Hey, I'm sorry. You know, I was going to reply to you by end of day. Um, this is the budget for the role. And, you know, it's, it's really outside of what you're looking for. Cause he had really, really high salary requirements. And then he said, Oh, okay. And then he's like, you know, I thought your interview process was really difficult. Like your, your tests made me run a rage quit a few times. And I really feel like you should make your interview process easier. And I was like, okay, thank you so much for that feedback. I really appreciate that. And it was just a funny story because the interview process is difficult on purpose, right? Because we want people who like challenging situations and who are able to get through them. And I thought it was so funny that this person was like, oh, I'm leaving a, you know, a this in this workplace. And then, you know, called me on my personal cell phone um, because I didn't respond quickly enough to his email question and then decided to give me feedback on how difficult our interview process was, which I love feedback. Don't get me wrong, but it was just ironic because the interview process is difficult on purpose. So neither a good nor a bad story, just like I thought a fun day in the life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, props to them, I guess, for their research skills, but you know, I'm not sure I would ever recommend someone going out there and finding someone, you know, basically doing cold calls. I agree. I agree. Um, especially like, you know, we were going to reply. It wasn't going to, it was literally same day. It's just a little intrusive. It feels a little, I, I also, you know, I give him props for, I give them props for putting in the effort and finding the phone number and being resourceful. And I give them props for going after what they want. But I think there were some things that, that may have kind of, left a weird impression in that process yeah absolutely especially if you know they're trying to follow up you know because they didn't get a same day response yep another kind of question because i know you'd mentioned this kind of earlier on in our conversation about you know having like a, a lot of perks like a four-day work week which i want to get into more details hopefully in 
later on in this interview. Are there things you can do to kind of screen out the people who are maybe just in it for the perks and maybe don't necessarily want to work as hard as everyone else in the team? We don't really have a ironclad process yet. We do have some indicators. Like if someone's interview is all about work-life balance, if that's all they care about, uh, it's a little bit of a red flag for me because I want people to care about work-life balance. I want people to have work-life balance. But if someone is writing only about work-life balance, then I feel like they're only joining us for the perks. They shouldn't only be joining us for the perks, you know? So if someone is like, oh yeah, the work-life balance is the reason I want to join the email marketers and there's nothing about our mission and what we're building, that worries me a little bit. So that we've kind of identified but at the same time, we also have like moms who have kids, you know, and the work-life balance really is a huge perk for them, but they're incredible hard workers. It's just, they love the flexibility. So they are able to take care of the kids. They love working from home. So they're able to like pick the kids up from school and drop them off. And so they're able, you know, they love the flexible work hours so they can, I don't know, go to cheer practice or something like that. So I've seen with moms, the work-life balance can be a perk that they mention. Um, and usually they're super hard workers. So I guess, you know, if you have a good reason for why the work-life balance really is the biggest thing, it can make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Have you always had a four-day work week? We started with a five-day work week and then we went bi-weekly to every other Friday off. And now we're at the four-day work week. What was that process like? Well... I think we we first tried every other Friday just to see if the weeks where we had every other Friday off would be really disruptive either to clients or to like the workload for people. And then when we felt like it wasn't, we we switched fully to the four-day work week. And I know I think a lot of companies kind of set up, set up their four-day work weeks in different ways, whether it's 10 hours, four days a week um, or something like that. How do you have it structured within the email marketers? We are actually doing eight hours, four days a week. Um, to be honest, we're looking at whether that really makes sense. We're looking at whether we should be doing uh, 10 hours every four four days because, you know, you do lose 20% of work capacity if you cut out a full day like that. So we know part of the four-day work week works and we're still trying to refine other parts. Fast forward, let's say two years from now, where would you like it to be? In two years from now, I would love for us to have figured out how to really utilize every team member at their optimal bandwidth. And by optimal bandwidth, I mean that they have, you know, a full workload without feeling overburdened or burnt out and us really knowing how to measure that. Because I think in the agency world, the hardest thing is like, how much work is too much work and how do we still make the whole thing profitable? Right. And so I think I would really love to have figured that out in the light of the four-day work week. That's such a good point. What are the metrics that you're using right now to kind of figure out, you know, everyone's capacity and especially as it ties into like your financial goals? Yeah, so we started measuring capacity based off of um, hours. So how many hours do they have? And how many hours do we expect them to spend on billable stuff? Because, you know, they have internal meetings and things like that. And then from there... How much work can we give them based on how we know how long things take? We are now switching more to a deliverables kind of approach, not how many hours do they have per se, but 
how many deliverables should they be able to deliver per day? And that I think will help people, you know, some people are super, super fast. They can do what other people can do in half the time. I don't want to punish those people by giving them more work. So I think this will really help with kind of that, that challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had any pushback from anyone on your team going from like, you know, hours to deliverables? Uh, no, I not yet so far. I actually think the team is really excited about it because they feel like, you know, they can do, if they do their work fast and at really high quality, they're not going to get punished by getting more work. It's more so that then because they're fast and they're good, they get more time for themselves on learning or other things. Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect that switching over to deliverable is pretty much incentivizes everyone on the team to figure out how to do their work better and even faster. Are you seeing things like ChatGPT or other kind of AI advancements kind of becoming more widely used within the team? Oh, for sure. I mean, we ask everyone to use ChatGPT as much as they can to help them save time, whether it's for copywriting or, I mean, we use AI for design very actively to create more assets for our brands, which is cool because not only are we faster, but we have better assets than we ever had. Uh, we use it for data analysis. We really encourage it across the entire team. However, there still has to be a human component, right? Like there's no scenario where we can just write copy with ChatGBT and we don't edit it after. It's more so that ChatGBT helps us do better work faster, but we can't rely on it fully without, without actually editing or doing our own stuff. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think AI is really great as an efficiency boost, but maybe not quite there yet when it comes to replacing design or good design or good copywriting. Have you had any pushback in your team around getting people who maybe are like threatened or scared of AI and kind of scared to like learn it? Like, have you seen any of that in your team? And if so, how have you handled it? Oh, for sure. I think when we started rolling out AI, there was pushback from almost everyone, especially the designers and the copywriters. The fear is always, hey, AI is going to take my job. But then we kind of really got them to see how it is like, you know, it's like Photoshop, essentially. When Photoshop came out, people were afraid, oh, my God, this is going to take my job. And then they realized, like, no, this is just going to make it better for me to do my job and, and do better stuff. So I think there had had been pushback. But once people realized, like, no, this is really an asset. This is going to make my life easier. You know, it was easier to get people to adopt it. And also, quite frankly, like I let my team know that we have to adapt it. We don't have another option because people in our industry are adopting it very quickly. And if we don't, we are at a really, really um, bad competitive advantage or, or like we're losing our competitive advantage, so to say. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, do you do any training with the people on your team or is it more just kind of forcing everyone, you're just finding people who are ambitious and want to lean in and learn this stuff themselves? Yeah, right now we do have a little team and I've tried doing this for a whole year, like building a team to help research this and we never really got far. However, I did some checking myself, like I tested AI myself, I put together a process and that helped. And now I do have a little team that is working on refining it even more that I trust a lot. We also tried working with like outside consultants, but that was just very, very expensive. Absolutely. What are some of the 
most surprising or kind of the most beneficial uses use cases that you and your team are using when it comes to AI? I mean, design really like when we work with clients and they don't have a lot of assets, it helps the most to have AI because before, you know, we could only work with what we have or some stock footage and that's never really good quality. Now, you know, if I want like, Hey, I want to show a chili pepper exploding into red hot sauce. I can go and I can make that with Midjourney or Dolly. And now I have way higher, you know, way higher quality assets to work with. So that was, that was an awesome kind of uh, growth opportunity with, with AI that we had. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit um, before we kind of wrap up and ask a couple of lightning round questions. Yeah. If you could have dinner with any celebrity, who would you choose and why? Listen, this is going to be not a popular answer, but Adam Sandler, I think he's so funny and I would love to just laugh for like an hour and a half straight. Um, but besides that, you know, if it was living or dead, I would love to have dinner with like Albert Einstein because I think he was just an interesting personality. Like he was one of the most impactful people, I think, in modern modern science and yet he had such an interesting kind of like silly personality I would have loved to just have him explain science to me because I have a hard time grasping some of the concepts so I would have loved to sit there with him and just just have a conversation I love it two completely different uh sides of the spectrum but both super insightful yeah um if you were tasked with teaching a one-hour lecture on any subject of your choice, but it can't be about entrepreneurship, running an agency, or email marketing, what would you lecture on and why? Surfing. I think uh, surfing, and specifically why surfing is a great reflection of life, because I have I've often seen that surfing teaches me a lot about life and business and how to live life. I love it. What's the most impactful lesson you've learned? The most impactful lesson I've learned is that the magic happens outside of your comfort zone. If it feels a little uncomfortable and not quite safe, obviously I'm not talking about doing dangerous things, right? But if it feels a little uncomfortable and you're a little nervous, you're probably in the right place to do something really exciting. Good advice. Um, and if you were to win $25 million tomorrow, yes, what would you spend it on? 25 million, I would probably, um, most of it, I would probably take and think about how to make more money with it. So if I got 25 million, I might buy myself a beachfront house and my mom and I's house, um, make sure my family's set and then use that money to invest and make more money with it. Got it. It's been great chatting with you on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Melanie. Where can listeners find you online? Yeah, I tweet a lot under Melanie uh, Balky. Melanie, the dash, but not the under, what do you call it? The dash at the bottom, <laughs> underscore? Uh, underscore? Underscore, Melanie underscore Balky. Uh, or on LinkedIn, just Melanie Balky. You can also check out our company at theemailmarketers.com. And yeah, happy to connect with anyone and everyone. Love it. Thank you again. Thank you as well. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.